The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. Isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all? To feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today, US-Russian relations are dominated by intense rivalry and talk of a new Cold War. 30 years ago, however, as Bill Clinton and Boris Yeltsin embarked on an unlikely bromance... They were defined by optimism and the possibilities of partnership. So what went wrong? In her new book, Not One Inch, Mary Surratt argues that the cause of current tensions lies in a series of diplomatic missteps in the 1990s. Here, in conversation with our production editor, Spencer Mizen, she discusses how a great opportunity to forge a bright new future for US-Russian relations was squandered. So Mary, your new book is called Not One Inch, America, Russia and the Making of Post-Cold War Stalemate. But could you start by explaining where the term not one inch comes from? The phrase originally comes from the American Secretary of State, James Baker. But of course, it's taken on a life of its own. So let me tell you a little bit about the origin and then how it took on a life of its own, a life of its own. So, of course, in 1989, the Berlin Wall came down unexpectedly. And that when the Berlin Wall came down, it was clearly the end of the Cold War order. So the question was, what now? What's going to be the new order? And so there were a whole host of negotiations over what the new order would be. And a big part of the new order is the question of the future of Germany, because Germany was, of course, divided during the Cold War. And it was clear with walls coming down that Germans wanted to unite. But, and this is a big but, as a result of the Second World War, Germany still had occupying forces on its territory. Nazi Germany had, of course, surrendered unconditionally to the victors in World War II, and they still had as I said, not only occupying troops, but also the legal right to keep them there. There had been some modifications, but but uh, to, to simplify, Germany was still technically an occupied country. So Germany could not unify until those countries ag- agreed to let it do so. Most importantly, Moscow, the Soviet Union, still had nearly 400,000 troops and the legal right to keep them there. So in order for Germany to unify, it had to convince Mikhail Gorbachev, the leader of the Soviet Union, to give up both those troops and his legal right to keep them there. And the West was trying to support Germany in this effort, particularly the United States, particularly Washington. And so the question was, how do you negotiate this? 
So as part of a whole host of negotiations, the U.S. Secretary of State James Baker had a meeting with Mikhail Gorbachev in February 1990. And as part of a hypothetical bargain, he proposed that he proposed the following idea. How about, Mikhail, you let your part of Germany go? I'm paraphrasing. He didn't actually say that. But how about, uh, President, how about Mikhail Gorbachev, you let your part of Germany go? And we agree that NATO will not shift one inch eastward from its present position. In other words, NATO will permanently stay frozen on the Cold War line. And Mikhail Gorbachev listened to this and said, certainly any extension of the zone of NATO would be unacceptable words to that effect, but there's nothing that's formalized, right? And then when James Baker gets home from this trip to Moscow, he finds out from his boss, President George H.W. Bush, that what he said was not quite right. Because if that happens, if NATO stays frozen on the Cold War line, then divided Germany is going to be half in and half out of NATO, which makes no sense, right? Sorry, that united Germany is going to be half in and half out of NATO, which makes no sense. So um, that is obviously a problem. So President George H.W. Bush says, you know, I actually, I'm thinking of a different strategy, which is that we're going to keep NATO and we're going to keep NATO's ability to expand because, of course, NATO had expanded before during the Cold War. And what we're going to do instead of promising that NATO won't shift one inch eastward, what we're going to do is we're going to offer concessions as NATO moves in the direction of Moscow. In particular, we'll limit what we can do on eastern German territory. And the end result of this, actually, still to this day, is that the former territory of East Germany is the only part of Europe that is guaranteed by treaty to be nuclear free. There can be no nuclear weapons on what used to be the former territory of Germany, which, of course, now has the capital of Germany, Berlin, in the middle of it, which raises some interesting questions. So uh, Baker then has to backpedal, quietly lets allies know, wait a minute, what I said was causing confusion. This is, again, all internally. This is from confidential documents that, that I've found in archives or got declassified. This is not public. Baker starts confidentially saying, no, 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 what I said is causing confusion. Let's drop that. We'll you know, move forward, as the president said. The problem is it takes Gorbachev and Moscow a while to notice, right? And they seem to think they've got a going offer still on their hands. And then by about the spring of 1990, Gorbachev starts to get very bitter. And he says, you know, wait a minute, what's going on here? And he even in March 1990, Gorbachev says, you know, I'm, I'm beginning to realize that you're talking about countries leaving the Warsaw Pact and joining NATO, you know, what's going on? But he doesn't have anything in in, in writing, right? And later Russian, later Russian foreign ministers, so Russia, of course, is the successor to the Soviet Union, realized what a problem this was. Uh, Primakov, for example, complained that none of this was in writing. And so as a result, there starts to be this huge controversy. And this is not, this is not dusty history. Vladimir Putin still complains about this to this day. He, he justifies what he's doing in Crimea, for example, because of this. He says this is this huge betrayal. So this is not just of interest to historians. This is having an impact on international relations to this day. So there's this huge controversy over whether or not there was a betrayal. In other words, by uttering those words and then changing its mind, whether Washington betrayed Russia. And then there's a further development, which is the reason why I decided to use this as the title of my book. The further development is that In 1991, December 1991, so 30 years ago, uh, the Soviet Union collapses. And suddenly Washington realizes it can not only win big, it can win bigger. 
right? Now that the Soviet Union is going away, not just the Warsaw Pact, the, what used to be the involuntary military alliance of Central and Eastern Europe with Moscow, but the Soviet Union itself, suddenly there's whole new horizons opening up. And gradually those words, not one inch, they actually start to take on the exact opposite meaning. They come to mean in Washington's eyes that not one inch of territory needs to be off limits to NATO. And so in my book, I, I tell this story of this, this arc from one meaning of not one inch to another. It's the story of the 1990s. The book really, the book, the book investigates the whole era between the end of the Cold War and COVID, but it really focuses on the years 1989 to 1999 and that arc from one meaning of not one inch to the other. So that's why I decided to use that as the title of the book. I mean, how important were these words in, in persuading Gorbachev to, re- to recall the hundreds of thousands of Soviet troops that were stationed in, in East Germany? And, and for Gorbachev, how hard a sell was this to the, to the Soviet public at the, at the end of the 80s and the beginning of the 90s? This was an extremely challenging sequence of events for Gorbachev. Mikhail Gorbachev was, of course, a reformer. He came to power and instituted perestroika and a host of other reforms. But he was a a proud son of the Soviet Union. He was not trying to destroy the Soviet Union. He wanted to improve it and save it. And he certainly did not intend to let divided Germany go. As a matter of fact, when former U.S. President Ronald Reagan in June Uh, 1987, went to Berlin, divided Berlin, stood in front of the wall and said, tear down this wall. What happened was nothing. Mikhail Gorbachev knew, like every other Soviet citizen, of the tens of millions of Soviet soldiers and citizens who lost their lives in World War II and the victory against the Nazis, and felt very strongly that the Soviet Union was justified in holding on to its part of Germany. So when Reagan said, tear down this wall, he didn't. And the wall is still standing. And even with all these reforms that he's instituting, you know, the wall is still standing. So he's not actually in charge of the Soviet Union to destroy it and give away East Germany. Then, of course, the Berlin Wall opens through an amazing sequence of events. It's unplanned. Uh, I've explored these events in another book called The Collapse, The Accidental Opening of the Berlin Wall. The title gives away the, the plot. Spoiler alert, it wasn't planned. And uh, that is a shocking event, and Gorbachev is not ready for that. Gorbachev, in particular, consistently underestimated the power of nationalism, uh, both inside Germany, but also inside the Soviet Union, which, of course, is a multi-ethnic state with many nationalities, which then start to have ideas of, of their own about becoming independent. So the wall has come down. He doesn't expect this. It's a chaotic situation. He has some people advising him to use force to reseal it, which, thank goodness, he doesn't. I think the world owes Mikhail Gorbachev a debt of gratitude for not doing that. He didn't know in advance it was going to happen. So the chance of a panicky reaction was large. And so he doesn't use force. But then suddenly, as I said, now all of these questions are up in the air about what's the future of, of order in post-Cold War Europe. And Gorbachev has has three strong cards. I've mentioned two already. He has nearly 400,000 troops there, and he has the legal rights to keep them there because of the unconditional surrender from World War II. He also has the power of public opinion. Mikhail Gorbachev in 1990 was a rock star. He caused gridlock when he went to cities. He's on his way to a Nobel Peace Prize. And if he had made an appeal, particularly to West Germans, to say something like, How about this? How about you agree to denuclearize, throw out all those nuclear weapons, and in exchange, I'll let you unify? A a lot of Germans would have said, great. Germany, divided Germany during the Cold War, had more nuclear weapons per square mile than anywhere on Earth. 
And if deterrence had failed, the Germans had arguably more skin in the game than their NATO allies because they would have been on, shall we say, the receiving end of a lot of those weapons. And there had been massive protests in the 1980s against these weapons. So Gorbachev had this power of public opinion too. So he's got the troops, he's got the legal rights, and he's got the power of public opinion. So he has some leverage. But the West is is um, is being led by President George H.W. Bush, Secretary of State James Baker, and they're very, very skilled negotiators. And they're trying a lot of different ways to get him to give up those cards. As I said, one one way was this hypothetical bargain about, hey, how about NATO doesn't move one inch eastward? But then Bush says to Baker, well, no, 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 we're not going to do that. So then the focus shifts to another strategy as uh, the um, secretary, the later secretary of defense, Bob Gates put it at this point, he's the deputy national security advisor. Bob Gates says our strategy became one of, quote, bribing the Soviets out bribing the Soviets out. And even better, they realized the West Germans will be willing to pay the bribe in order to unify their country. So they start working very closely together, as Gates said, to bribe the Soviets out together with Helmut Kohl, the chancellor of Germany. And that eventually does the trick. But it is a difficult challenge. It, you know, There's a lot of months of negotiation. And as you rightly point out, this is also a hard sell to the Soviet public, but also to the Soviet military in particular. And Soviet military officers get very, very embittered at Gorbachev that he's moving forward. And later, of course, that results, the people who oppose Gorbachev actually carry out a coup against him in 1991. One of the things, this is the last thing I'll say on this question, one of the things that was interesting to me was that the uh, West German Chancellor and then German Chancellor Helmut Kohl sensed that he was on uh, unsteady ground, shall we say. When the Berlin Wall came down, internally, he started saying to his allies, you know, we need to get our harvest in before the storm. We need to get our harvest in before the storm. And what he meant by that was, I, Helmut Kohl, am assuming that the wall coming down is such a fiasco for Gorbachev that hardliners are going to mount a resistance to him. There's going to be a coup. There's going to be a storm that's going to sweep away Gorbachev. And then we're going to have hardliners. So I'm, I'm so sure that's happened. We need to basically rush to do everything we can to get our harvest in before the storm to unify Germany. And uh, he was right about that because the military is very angry at Gorbachev and eventually there is a coup. The Bush and Cole pull it off. They unify Germany in 329 days. They do get their harvest in before the storm, but the storm does come. There is a coup against Gorbachev. Now, you, you draw a direct line from uh, James Baker's promise to Vladimir Putin's rise to power a decade later. I mean, to what extent do you think that the former contributed to the latter? Vladimir Putin brackets my book. At the beginning, he's present as a bit player. He's a mid to low level KGB agent. That was the Soviet secret police present in Dresden, which is a small city or smallish city in East Germany. And he's watching an absolute horror as Soviet and East German control collapses. He can't believe that people aren't fighting back. He personally calls some of the Soviet military officers, tries to encourage them to come to his aid with force. And they respond, we, we can't do anything without an order from Moscow, and Moscow is silent. Moscow is silent. He said that phrase in his memoirs, he said that phrase haunted him for years. So he's basically um, horrified that there's not a more violent response. He personally threatens to shoot people. He burns all of his documents. And then when he's done that, he retreats from his home in a 
collapsing East Germany to his home in a collapsing Soviet Union. And he later talks about this in his memoirs and says things such as, you know, we would have uh, spared ourselves a lot of trouble if the Soviets had not just pulled out of Germany like that. We would have done much better if we had, in fact, pushed back so hard that our opponents could not rise to their feet again. And it's interesting because you can see some of his attitude towards how he deals with um, dissidents now in this attitude towards the end of East Germany. So uh, he is clearly shaped by this. And then, of course, at the end of the book, he turns up as the acting president of Russia. So as acting president, obviously now he's no longer a bit player. He's very powerful. And many of these lessons that he learned from these events help to shape how he rules. Again, this isn't dusty history. This still has an impact to this day. So these 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 issues are very much related. And one of the questions I, I pose in my book is, you know, we, we tend to think of the end of the Cold War as this period of triumph, but there's another way of considering the end of the Cold War. What if when you look back from a century, say a century down the road, we look back, perhaps the most important outcome of the end of the Cold War was how it shaped Putin and fueled his rise, Right. That's a reframing of the end of the Cold War, and it's not what we expected. I was studying abroad in West Berlin in 1989. That's how I got interested in this topic. And on a personal level, it's heartbreaking to me how much of the optimism from that time has disappeared, right? And how much hostility, there, renewed hostility there is now between Washington and Moscow. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. The way that Clinton and Yeltsin interacted in these moments was was hugely important. And in some ways, it was heartbreaking to do this research. I kept hoping the story would end differently, of course, but it doesn't. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. To carry on that theme a, a little bit, um, looking back from uh, 2021 with the benefit of hindsight, you know, the rise of Putin, the diminution of American global in- influence, democracy's crisis and confidence, I guess it's easy to sort of say this is a was a really bad idea on the part of NATO and the Americans and accuse them of arrogance and hubris. But can you kind of understand why the elites of America and Britain might have thought that they could could expand NATO all the way to Russia's borders? I think that NATO expansion is an understandable policy. My book, Not One Inch, isn't an anti-NATO book. The states of Central and Eastern Europe wanted to join NATO. Their leaders and their people had bravely thrown off the Soviet yoke. They had the right to choose their own security alliances. They wanted to join NATO. This is very much a demand-driven phenomenon. Also, 
the Western response to expand NATO, that was neither unprecedented nor unreasonable. NATO had expanded multiple times during the Cold War. And, you know, it, it, as it had that precedent, it could keep expanding. So I think that NATO expansion was a reasonable policy. The problem was how it happened. For too long, the discussion about NATO expansion has been too simplistic and binary. The discussion has been roughly as follows. NATO expansion was bad. No, NATO expansion was good. That's kind of been the debate today. I'm trying with my book, Not One Inch, to say, hey, it's more complicated than that. NATO expansion was not one thing. There were a lot of different ways that NATO could have expanded. And in fact, in the very beginning, at the kind of at the end of the George H.W. Bush presidency, and definitely the very beginning of the Clinton presidency, some savvy policymakers figured out a way to expand NATO that was, if not popular, at least minimally acceptable to all the stakeholders. And that was called the Partnership for Peace. That, that organization has kind of been forgotten now, but as I argue in the book, that would have been, I think, a more sustainable way to expand NATO that would have caused less aggravation. Basically, the idea behind that, as expressed by President Clinton himself, was to, as he put it, avoid drawing a new line across Europe. Right? As President Clinton put it, we've just had the end of the Cold War, the, the, wall, the Berlin Wall has come down. Why are we going to draw a new line across Europe? Uh, President Clinton said, in particular, we need to think not just about Central and Eastern Europe, so not just Hungary, Poland, the Czech Republic. We also need to think about the post-Soviet states, and in particular, Ukraine. Ukraine turns out to be hugely important to the story. Clinton says, you know, look, Ukraine is a country with more than 50 million people. It's on the size of Britain or France. It's becoming a democracy. Ukraine was born nuclear. It was born the third largest nuclear power in the world. We, we can't just ignore that country. But it, it's also unreasonable that we're just going to put it in NATO, right? It's, you know, shares a huge border with Russia, extensive cultural ties. What we need is some kind of intermediate organization and then various countries, including post-Soviet states like Ukraine, can affiliate with that immediate intermediate organization and then gradually gain membership in phases. Now, again, this is not popular, right? Because on the one hand, the Central and Eastern Europeans, they want to be in NATO right away, so they don't like it. And the Russians don't want it to happen at all, so they don't like it either. But that's that's kind of the nature of a compromise, right? Not everybody gets you know what they want. Everybody gives a little bit. And it was at least minimally acceptable. Uh, Clinton personally went to Poland. He also sent his chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General John Chalikashvili, who had been born in Poland. He's, he went to Poland, John Chalikashvili went to Poland, and he said, you know, we understand, we understand Lech Walesa, Nobel laureate, president of Poland. We understand your concerns, but you, Poles, should understand the importance of not drawing lines across Europe, right? You, the Yalta summit after World War II tragically left you behind a line. We can't do the same thing to Ukraine. And so even though they don't like it, through gritted teeth, the Poles agree to it, and the Russians agree to it, and the partnership for peace, it starts doing its work. This is not a counterfactual. This actually happens. But then for reasons, as I describe in my book, which we can get into if you want, Clinton changes his mind. The Americans change their mind. They're partly inspired to do that because of some very tragic choices by the Russian president, Boris Yeltsin. Most importantly, his decision to shed the blood of his political opponents in Moscow and Chechnya, because suddenly that makes everyone start to recalibrate and think, oh, maybe the new Russia isn't so different from the old Soviet Union. So what the, the what I describe in the book, there's there's this gradual shift away from what I thought was a sustainable method of expanding NATO. And that's when things start to unravel. Did anyone ever seriously consider the prospect of Russia becoming a member of NATO? 
Yes, that was the subject of a great deal of discussion, because if the West is saying any post-Soviet democratic state can join, then in theory that should include Russia. So there was at least a rhetorical willingness to consider including Russia. But then, as I just mentioned, when Yeltsin decides to shed the blood of his domestic political opponents in 1993, when there are the rise of parties that uh, are you know, very right-wing in Russia, very hostile to Yeltsin, when he invades Chechnya, there starts to be a rethink about whether or not that's possible. And internally, already by 1995, another important organization, the European Union, internally by 1995, as I show in my book, leading EU policymakers are saying to them, are saying among each other, Russia is never going to join the EU. We, we're not going to talk about this publicly because it's useful in negotiating, but we've decided by 1995 that Russia is not going to join the EU. And increasingly inside the United States, there's concern about this bloodshed. And then there's a U.S. domestic political factor that comes in. In the year 1994, there are midterm congressional elections. So the U.S. president is not up but for re-election, but, but Congress people are. And the American Republican Party wins a dramatic victory. They take both the House and the Senate. And they do so on the basis of something called the Contract with America, or Contract for America. It's basically a, a list of positions on various on various topics, and one of them is on NATO expansion, and it argues for a, a more aggressive form of NATO expansion. In other words, he, it argues for the form of NATO expansion that we actually get, which is instead of having an intermediate organization to modulate the process and let a wide array of countries have a loose affiliation, you do the exact opposite. It's an all-or-nothing manner of expansion where either you give countries the Article 5 guarantee right away or nothing. The Article 5 guarantee, as many of your listeners may know, is, of course, the heart of the NATO treaty. It's the article that states that all members of this alliance shall regard an attack on one as an attack on all. That's a very, very strong guarantee. And so there was this switch as a result of the Republicans winning. Clinton has to pay attention to that because he's, he wants to be reelected. So he's got to pay attention to their victory. There's Yeltsin invading Chechnya. There's a bunch of things going on. Ukraine is denuclearizing, which makes it less important. So suddenly having a birth for Ukraine becomes less important. And gradually Clinton shifts and he says, you know, Clinton having said, I'm not going to draw a new line across Europe, he draws a new line across Europe. He decides, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to give Article 5 to a small number of countries, and then we'll you know, just keep going. And so that's the manner of expansion that we get. And I argue that that maximized Moscow's irritation leaves Ukraine in the lurch, which gives many hostages to fortune and becomes very problematic. Now, I actually, let me just add very quickly, I am not arguing that the only reason relations between the U.S. and Russia declined after Soviet collapse was because of NATO expansion. I am not arguing that. As a historian, I, I don't believe in monocausality. Important events happen for multiple reasons. So you're basically arguing that it's a factor, but not the only factor. Right, and exactly. But it, it, it feeds into what is a deterioration anyway. And it happens tragically when Russia for the first time is becoming a democracy, right? At a time when Russia was, you know, most in need of friends, this precious window. Basically, cold wars are not short-lived affairs, so thaws are precious. 
And when I looked at all this information, it became clear to me that neither Washington nor Moscow made the best possible use of the thaw of the 1990s. And now we're back to a new period of hostility. Now, many of the documents you accessed in your research for the book were previously kept strictly under lock and key, weren't they? I mean, how much of a challenge was it to get them declassified and, and released? And did you experience much pushback in your, in your, in your efforts to get that done? Yes, I experienced pushback, but I should also say I also had some terrific archivists and declassification experts who also supported me. In 2018, I got just a huge trove of documents released from the Clinton Library, above all, the transcripts of nearly all summits between Clinton and Yeltsin, which are extremely interesting because, of course, they had a very interesting relationship, Bill and Boris. I I think it's not, not inaccurate to call it a bromance. They... Uh, enjoyed each other's company. They enjoyed good meals. They uh, saw each other more than any American and Soviet or Russian leaders before or since. They saw each other 18 times. Clinton went to Russia more than any other American leader. But the relationship, as I saw in this evidence, also declined tragically. So what starts off with bromance and bonhomie descends by the end into alcohol-fueled tirades by Yeltsin, who had a serious drinking problem, descends into uh, Yeltsin hanging up on Clinton. So these documents tell a really remarkable story of the arc of their relationship. And I, I knew even before I looked at the documents, I knew they must be good because the Russian presidential spokesman, Dmitry Peskov, complained when it became public that I had won this appeal and these documents had gotten released. Uh, He complained because, of course, his boss today, Putin, is all over these documents because Putin worked for Yeltsin in many positions, among other things, as his prime minister. And so Putin is all over these documents. You can see Putin's rise in these documents to the presidency. And so Peskov complained. He said, you know, the Clinton Library should not be releasing documents on currently serving politicians, which I personally thought was kind of rich because Putin, as far as I can tell, is going to be a currently serving politician as long as as he is alive. So we're not going to have any documents if that's the case. Just to expand on the, um, the Yeltsin and Clinton relationship a little bit. I mean, did that really, did the deterioration of that relationship really impact on the arc of the two nations relationship? Did, did the personal go international, as it were? Yes, absolutely. As a historian, what fascinates me is the interplay of structure and agency, by which I mean the broad historical forces interacting with individual decisions. So you had this precious thaw in the Cold War. Uh, President Clinton was very conscious of it. He would say, you know, we have this chance that hardly any other previous leaders have had to establish peace across all of Europe. We could write a new chapter in the history of the world. So this was a moment of huge opportunity. And these moments like that, where dramatic change has happened, and so you're you're restructuring order, they, I think, are for historians, particularly interesting because they really are where structure and agency interact and where the choices of the political leaders take on outsized weight. And so the way that Clinton and Yeltsin interacted in these moments was was hugely important. And in some ways, it was heartbreaking to do this research. I kept hoping the story would end differently, of course, but it doesn't. Because when you read these documents from the end of the Cold War, even in the George H.W. Bush presidency, but particularly when the bromance between Bill and Boris starts, you just see so much you know, willingness to cooperate, particularly on nuclear issues. This was the greatest 
moment and op- moment for an opportunity for disarmament since the dawn of the atomic age. And when things were going good between the East and the West, uh, we made huge strides. In fact, in the book, in Not One Inch, I tell the story of the American Secretary of Defense, Bill Perry. He's one of the perhaps lesser known figures, but it's very important in the story. And Bill Perry, when he starts to sense there's a shift coming in NATO expansion from this partnership for peace, slow, diffuse manner of expanding to the all or nothing Article 5, he starts to let Clinton know that that's going to be a problem. And he says, again, I'm paraphrasing, but he says roughly, you know, President Clinton, I have huge respect for Central and Eastern Europeans, particularly how they overthrow, particularly how they overthrew the Soviet bloc. But... I am the Secretary of Defense of the United States of America. My job is to keep America safe and make it safer. I am currently doing an excellent job of that because I am working closely and well with my colleagues in Moscow to decrease the number of missiles pointed at the United States and to secure the former Soviet nuclear arsenal, to get the parts of it that are outside Russia relocated to Russia so only one nuclear successor state emerges from the Soviet Union and there's no dramatic accidents. We're doing amazing work, but the Russians do not like NATO expansion. So if you're going to suddenly switch expansion to this way, if you're going to do expansion prematurely, if you're going to rush to this all or nothing, it's going to hurt my ability to keep the United States safe. Don't do it. And he's unsuccessful. And Perry, he even considers resigning over this. He doesn't. But in his memoirs, he later said, I wished I had resigned because the consequences of premature NATO expansion were even worse than I'd imagined. Now, as you point out in the book, Russia's economy isn't that much bigger than Spain's. So how has it managed so successfully to be a, a thorn in the West side over the, the past 20 years? And, and how does it continue to wield so much influence on the international stage? I think it's important to remember that despite the size of its economy, Russia, of course, retains a strategic nuclear arsenal, right? To this day, the United States and Russia still possess over 90% of the world's nuclear warheads. Now, obviously, we talk today, we focus more on cyber, we focus more on economic issues, but it's important to keep that in mind because that means that the United States and Russia are the two countries that are basically capable of ending nearly all life on Earth, right? I think during the Cold War, we had greater public awareness of this than we did, than we do now, in a sense. And in some ways, that's almost more frightening because at least during the Cold War, It was always in the forefront of everyone's mind. So because of that, Russia is too nuclear to ignore, right? Almost regardless of the size of its economy. It's also run by Vladimir Putin, who has in many ways played a weak economic hand very well. Putin has shown a willingness to solve crises or what he thinks are crises by escalating them, right? Which we didn't anticipate, right? By using force, by using violence. I think one of the problems, again, going back to the thaw of the 1990s, is that we didn't understand Putin's true character, his brinksmanship, his willingness to leave behind the cooperation of the post-Cold War period. Again, I don't think we, we understood that for him, the wall coming down was a tragedy. And uh, his he carried with him this sense of grievance that he shared with all displaced servants of the Soviet state. And so in my book, Not One Inch, it's uh, it's interesting 
for me as an author because he he brackets the book. He's president, as I said at the beginning, in East Germany when it's collapsing, and he's of course president at the president at the end when he's becoming the leader of Russia. In between, he largely disappears, which is fitting behavior for a member of the secret police, but you can just sense him lurking off stage, nursing these grievances about Soviet collapse. And it's not inevitable that someone like Putin becomes president of the country, but once he does, then all of a sudden all those grievances and memories become very, very important to how he runs the country. What do you think the future holds for relations between Russia and the West? (sighs) Yeah, I, I hope there are ways that they can improve. And my hope is that we can move beyond shouting at each other, right? You know, NATO expansion's bad. No, it's good. You betrayed us. No, we didn't. You know, that doesn't that, that doesn't help, right? Now, I'm under no illusions that this is going to, you know, have sudden this sudden wonderful effect on US Russian relations. But I think it's it's a first step on a difficult issue. I also think we need to in in the West already start thinking about the post-Putin moment. Uh, I don't know when that's going to happen, but we should start thinking about that thaw and how to make a good use of that thaw. And finally, Mary, when, when we look back at this this period in history, late 80s and throughout the 90s, this period of sort of optimism and hope, when we look back at that from the, the sort of the fraught geopolitical landscape of 2021, I mean, it, is it hard to avoid the feeling this is a huge missed opportunity? Yes, clearly we had hoped back then for a better timeline to the future. In my book, I use a quotation from Svetlana Alexievich, the Nobel laureate in literature. She says, we missed our chance in the 90s, so we need to wait for the new times all over again. My hope is that perhaps by looking in a serious way at what happened using all available evidence, Perhaps we can do more than just wait for the new times. Perhaps we can help to speed them along. But we need to be realistic about what unfolded, and we need to be realistic about the fact that, you know, as I said, these thaws are very, very precious, and we, we didn't handle it as well as we could have. It could have been worse, right? We haven't descended into war. But on the other hand, we are on what seems to be a very dark timeline, and it is heartbreaking for someone such as myself who as I said, was studying in West Berlin in 1989 and experienced that moment of optimism firsthand. That was Mary Surratt. Not One Inch, America, Russia and the Making of the Post-Cold War Stalemate is published by Yale University Press. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. (laughs) 